This event was recorded live at the 2015 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Wow. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Edinburgh International Book Festival. My name is Nick Barley. I'm director of the festival, and I've taken this opportunity to introduce this event with two extraordinary authors who are going to take us on a journey this evening. I want to say thank you to the Institut Francais for their support, which helped us to bring one of these authors over. And also, just to let you know, we're filming the event tonight, so when it gets to questions, please wait for the microphone to come to you so that the, what you will have to say is properly recorded. So, But they have to guess which one the Institute Francais brought. Can you guess? <laughs> <laughs> we, we don't have an Israel Institute, but the, the Mossad was involved in getting me here. <laughs> There was no Israeli money involved in bringing you yeah, here. Yeah, I know, I know, I know. <laughs> Let's be clear about that. <laughs> Please help me welcome these two wonderful authors, Alain Mabancou and Edgar Kerrit. Now, those of you who've studied the, uh, the brochure for the book festival will know that a big theme of this year's festival is trading stories. It's about the fact that too often the currency that we've come to think about, uh, in, about the, in the world is money, when in fact there are other ways in which we can understand the human condition. And stories are another way, which I believe, another currency in which I'd prefer for us to, to think and trade. And so tonight we're going to trade stories with authors, one of whom has made a journey from Central Africa, from the Congo, to Paris and then Los Angeles and back again. And another of whom has made a journey, or at least his family have, from Poland to Israel. And both of their stories will transport us, I think, across the world. And I think there are great resonances between them. So, where should we start? Let's start with you, Alain Mabankou. Mm -hmm. Born in the Congo in 1966, left in 1989 to move to Paris and the author of a number of fantastic novels, including Memoirs of a Porcupine, Broken Glass, and most recently, in the UK at least, Tomorrow I'll Be Twenty. Anyone who read that novel and suspected that there might be something autobiographical about it will have that suspicion confirmed in this memoir, The Lights of Pointe Noire, which describes Alain's return to the Congo to meet some members of his family and to talk about the town where he grew up. Now, I want to, before we start talking about this, a little mm -hmm. personal anecdote. A couple of years ago, I had the honor to take the Edinburgh International Book Festival over to Brazzaville in the Congo and to help Alain, where he was the co-director of a literary festival in Brazzaville. Alain, tell us a, a bit about that festival. <laughs> uh, thank you for hosting us here. I'm talking to the name of Edgar, too. I think that uh, Brazzaville was a great experience for me because I left my country. I didn't go back for like 23 years. So I went to Brazzaville for the festival with uh, Nick, who was there. And uh, it was like I was discovering again my own country. In the street, I was thinking that nobody knows me over there. But when right. I get over there, 
I thought that literature is like football in the Congo, you know? You go to the market, uh, an old mama gonna say, oh, you the writer I saw on TV, she's gonna give you a fruit, it's gonna be your cassava. So each morning, if I wanted like, to eat, I would go to the market with my, my and just trying to pass like a footballer, and uh, they would give me everything. Besides that, uh, at school, we went to the school, reading to uh, all the students over there, and uh, the kids were like coming from the morning till the evening. We needed like to feed them because they wanted literature more than everything in the city, because it's been it was been like uh, 20 years. I didn't see this kind of word with uh, writers from England, from America, from uh, Cameroon. It was a big feast and I knew, I know that you enjoyed the country because you were like saying that the food was very good and uh, um, yeah. I, I look forward to doing it again. Yeah, it, it was absolutely incredible and, and I think you're being a bit modest. You should have been there to see the kind of re reception that Alain got in Brazzaville. It was extraordinary. It was mobbed. It was like the David Beckham of his country. <laughs> <laughs> the saviour of the human race had arrived back <laughs> in, his, in his homeland. And, and the, the president of Congo Brazzaville, is a man called Denis Sasso, Sasso yes, Ngueso, mm -hmm. was so impressed by this, this apparition from somewhere else, from out, outside, that he came and visited the festival with his entourage and his bodyguards. And, and had, that he was then so impressed that he laid on a jet which took me and about 75 other writers from the Francophone world to this small town called Pointe-Noire. Mm -hmm. Tell us what Pointe-Noire is. Pointe-Noire is my, the city of my childhood. The light of Pointe-Noire recalled uh, that city. Uh, I was born over there. I grew up over there. You have the ocean sea. And... Um, you have uh, a lot of stuff. If you're, you're not from Pointe-Noire, you cannot understand the sense of the city. It's divided into parts. You have the European part with nice houses, uh, the center, uh, the supermarket, and you have the other part of the city. People are dancing. You're going to find the sapper, you know, the guy who... Uh, well-dressed with uh, British style, you know, uh, from John Smith, uh, the shoes. And during the night, it's like everything is happening in the other part of the city, while in the European cities, like dead, a dead city. <laughs> so that's what we kept for the colonization, the fact that uh, maybe European they don't know how to like dance, how to feel the move, and then they're just sleeping. So Pointe Noire, you visited, uh, is full of myth. Yeah. It's full of legends. When you go to the ocean, they will say to you that don't go over there because during the night the spirit gonna like stand up in order to come to the city to take the children who don't wanna go to the bed. So it's full of myth I try to put in the light of Pointe-Noire. Yeah. We'll, we'll which, come on to that in just one second, but yeah. just, just to get, because I, to me, I, I couldn't imagine what Pointe-Noire would be like, and I just want to try to, for us, to, to paint a picture of what it's like. And so for me, the, the image was that we flew from Brazzaville, which mm -hmm. is inland, about an hour's flight to Pointe-Noire, which is on the coast, over jungle. Mm -hmm. 
and the, the plane arrives, and you can see the, the coastline just as you can looking out of the window, and the first thing that struck me was about 50 oil tankers mm-hmm. in the sea as we came down. So this is a, this is a, a vibrant port town where oil is being sucked out and taken away by S- Exxon Valdez, I don't yes. know who, who some the, the oil companies. It was first France, France uh, Elf Aquitaine, and now it's uh, America. That yeah. may be the reason why we did face the two civil war. It was about uh, the oil. So each time you see a country which is fighting, think about that the oil is somewhere ever yeah. in Africa. So this is a country rich in natural resources. Mm. And when you land, what, what do you find when you, when you arrive in Pointe-Noire? What, what kind of a town is it? You have the sense to land. I didn't go to Pointe-Noire by the same means that no. you did <laughs> because I, I went over there just by plane, Air France yeah. at that time. But landing by jets like you did with uh, hundreds of people over there, you will find like uh, people can come to the airport like that. It's not like it's closed. You can go over there. I don't know if it's like that. And that's the place we would like uh, study because we didn't have uh, the light in order to read. We would go to the airport so that the light going to shine on the book and then we can read Hemingway, Faulkner, uh, Victor Hugo. So I read all my book over there, despite, uh, beside the French uh, Centre Culturel, French Institute now, yeah. that the place we would read, the place you would meet uh, a girl, because uh, home is not that easy with the brother or the father, you give an appointment to a girl, we're going to meet at the airport, and then you go <laughs> over there, yes, behind a tree, so you try to like, uh, learn how to kiss a girl. That was, <laughs> Now, uh, in this extraordinary memoir, The the Lights of Pointe-Noire, you explain at the beginning why you particularly wanted to go back Mm -hmm. 23 years after you'd left Pointe-Noire. Could Mm -hmm. you tell us a bit about about that that first impulse to return? Yes, I didn't go back because just in 1995, my mother died over there. So I was a student, I was young and... I didn't have money to go back over there, so I didn't go to the funeral. So I thought that uh, this failure prevented me from going there for just as a tourist. So I waited and waited and waited again. And when I was invited by the French Institute over there to present the previous book, Tomorrow I Will Be 20, which is happening in uh, Pointe-Noire, then I decided to go. I said, okay, I'm going there in order to face my family, to face the people, to face the city, and even to face my own mother who is in the cemetery. Yeah. So I went over there, and the shock was very huge. I saw my brother. He came to the conference. It was full, like 500 people. Because the first time I went to the French Institute, the guy was complaining, no, the literature is dead here, nobody's going to come. We tried to find like uh, 20 chairs, and you're going to speak to the white people who live in the European country. So I was disappointed. So. But my brother went to the other part of the city and said that 
my brother is back and I have everybody over there. So he was disappointed. I thought, what I'm going to do? I cannot receive people here, tell them. So we put this kind of uh, bath, we said, outside so that people can listen to the, my conference uh, outside. Yeah. So while I was reading, tomorrow I will, uh, I will be 20, then my brother stood up. I didn't see him from like 21. He said that I'm the character in that novel. <laughs> <laughs> and, and he was drunk. Yeah, he, he was, was drunk. drunk. <laughs> so the security didn't know that it was my brother. He said, no, 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 no. And they went to him to put him away. I said that he's right. He's my brother. And that was silence. <laughs> and I realized that all the first rank was full of my family. So I saw, I saw this guy, I saw him somewhere. He was my uncle. Yeah. <laughs> so I put yeah. the photo in the book so that uh, people by reading can like compare. Yeah. So, the, so the, it, it, you write incredibly movingly about how, how your guilt about the mm. fact that your mother died and you hadn't been able to go back for the funeral and you feel really bad yes. about that. And it's a journey of rediscovery of, of your family uh, and all these amazing, curious characters. Mm -hmm. And that, the fact that you, are, you return as, as an outsider, many of them, I think they, they, they want to be a bit angry with you. for. for yes, first of all, they were like angry to me. But uh, yes, I didn't go, but I said to myself that the... The only way to pay my tribute is to like, uh, make that woman one of the mothers, the best known in African literature. So all my novels, you're going to see Pauline in the book. Pauline, uh, I can put uh, the name of a street, Pauline something, and people are going to say, but we don't have a street named Pauline Kenge. It's just the way of paying the, the tribute over there. It was a rejection. They wanted money. Because yeah. my brother said, yes, pay for the funerals. you have to give back the money because I was the only one who make everything over there. So I was giving, giving, and giving everything, yeah. even clothes. You know, I came back in Los Angeles with nothing in my, in my bag, but I was happy. Even now, they're still calling and calling. Yeah. So I'm becoming like an ATM, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so, so while we're on the subject of families and uh, guilt, I think this might be an opportunity for us just, just to, to fly out from Pointe-Noire across the African continent to Tel Aviv. Yes, I was to, there to, to pick up yeah. <laughs> I was there to his country. Story. Yeah, just to prove that you can uh, have uh, wars without oil too. Yes. You don't need oil yes, yes, to yes, kill yes. each other. Yeah. That's why I went over there to make sure that uh, I was wrong. <laughs> so we're going to fly from Pointe Noire, we're going to land in Tel Aviv, Tel Aviv. And, and just for a minute, we'll come back to you, yeah, Alain, uh, and we'll, we'll just introduce your story. Born in 1967 in Tel Aviv, and uh, now you've become a, a best-selling writer of short stories. I think five short story collections before you published this memoir. Um, and I think one of the funniest writers anywhere. And, and the, 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 but you're both funny writers, but the, the humor in both of you uh, survives the translation and we'll come back to humor in a minute. Um, you s this is a, a memoir which takes place over seven years. Would you like to tell us what, why those seven years are significant? Uh, well, uh, it begins with the birth of my son and it ends with the death of my father. And uh, my parents uh, uh, are both Holocaust survivors and uh, 
And for them, surviving the war, my mother lost all her family. She lost her brother, she lost her parents, and my father lost his sister and had brought his father to Israel only to be murdered in Israel just as they arrived. So for them, the, the, the great fantasy through the war as children was that one day they grow up and they'll have a family, and they'll have children, and there will be some kind of lineage, mm -hmm. some kind of continuation. And uh, it was like somebody thinking he's going to win the Oscar or win the Nobel Prize because it wasn't trivial to, to finish the war alive and intact and in such a mental situation that somebody else would want to, to marry you. So this idea of kind of having a, both... A, a pair, a, kind of being sandwiched between a parent and a child was something that uh, that always seemed kind of like a this huge gift and uh, and I had seven years in which I both had a father and a child, which is something that uh, that my parents never had. And so um, I, I, I'm afraid to have to inject another little personal anecdote to, to balance the one about Pont Noir. I had the good fortune to travel to Krakow to a literary festival there last year, at uh, which I was aware you were, you were appearing, and I, and I wanted to meet you and, and talk to you and um, say hello. And I had no idea that you would be held in such high esteem in Poland. I had no idea of your, your background. Um, but there you were, we were. We were in, in the Jewish quarter of Krakow, and you had this enormous entourage of, of fans who wanted to meet you <laughs> and talk to you. Uh, and then it was there that you told me about a connection you have with, with Warsaw, your personal connection now. Would you like to share with us what your, your Warsaw connection? Uh, yes, I, I want to say that, you know, the, the, the difference between uh, uh, my fans and your fans is that my fans can't dance and they go, <laughs> and they go to sleep very early, you know, so... Yeah. <laughs> you know, you it's know, true. Uh, we have a lot in common. <laughs> <laughs> my wife is half... Polish, ah. uh, you see, so it's close, and I'm going to Warsaw. So ah, you, ah, you say yeah. <laughs> you have to come to Pont Noir. Uh, yeah, so I'd let's love go. To. It's a deal. You heard it here first. <laughs> uh, so my strange connection to Warsaw is that a, a, a local architect who lives in Warsaw uh, called me one day, and I didn't know the guy, and he had very, very Polish. A heavy Polish accent when he spoke English, so it sounded like kind of a comedy char character, you know, like <laughs> like you, when you had the a faulty tower. So that's how, it, you know. So you had I'm Miguel, you know, I speak English. I've I've learned it from a book. I can't even do the accent. So he would do the equivalent in in Polish English, and he said to me that he one day walked in the street and he saw a gap between two buildings, and the gap had told him that he should build me a house there. <laughs> And uh, and I was sure somebody was making fun of me, and so I said to him, "Okay, okay, so always do what the ga gap tells you, okay? I gotta go now, you know." And I kind of and uh, and he flew over to Tel Aviv to meet me, just so I see that he's really serious. And basically, his idea was uh, to build me a house in the proportion of my stories, and because my stories are very short, so he wanted to build me the the narrowest house in the world. <laughs> And the house is really is a, a one meter and a 30 centimeters wide. Mm -hmm. uh, but very, very, uh, it has like uh, two floors and it's, it's very, very long, but very, very narrow. Mm -hmm. And I found myself kind of uh, uh, suddenly having this uh, house, you know, it's not like, it's not that I have a piece of real estate, but I have the keys and I can go there. 
and uh, and I I showed the place to my mother, and my mother left uh, left uh, Poland when she was ten, wow. and uh, I just said, you know, there is this strange guy. He and he did this kind of a computer. Uh, how do you say like a a rendering? Rend that I'll see how the house looks like. So it was kind of like a, a demo, and I showed it to her, and she immediately told me the address mm-hmm. of the street, and I said to her. How do you know the address you left so long ago? And she said that the, the house apparently was just the opposite to uh, the checkpoint in the Warsaw Ghetto, where they would stop people coming in and out. And my mother uh, survived by sm- smuggling food into the ghetto. Mm-hmm. And she said that the Nazis' uh, strategy was to detain the people who wanted to come in for a very long time. And they, they would get stressed, because if somebody smuggles something and you have to wait, then... You, so her way of not showing that she was afraid was that she would look at all the houses opposite and remember how many terraces they have and how many balconies and the doors and the numbers and all the facts. So, so she said, I know this frame because this is what I would see every time I would enter the ghetto. So by chance, he really picked a place that was uh, very important in my, my mother's history. Quite incredible. And you write about that very movingly in, in here as well. And, and I do recommend that you go online and have a look at this house. It's, it's wide enough to fit a single bed. And there are lovely pictures of Edgar reclining on the single bed <laughs> you can see online. So uh, perhaps now, now that we've set up the, these two memoirs by, by people who normally write fiction um, and the, their sort of journeys across the world, these are migrant writers. And perhaps you can start to see why these two writers are here with me on stage now. So, Edgar, I, I think it would be useful. Would you mind reading us um, from, from your memoir? Perhaps maybe the first story? Or... Great. Yes, so... Uh, it's called uh, Suddenly the Same Thing. I just hate terrorist attacks, the thin nurse says to the older one. Want some gum? The older nurse takes a piece and nods. What can you do, she says. I also hate emergencies. It's not the emergencies, the Finn one insists. I have no problem with accidents and things. It's the terrorist attacks, I'm telling you. They put a damper on everything. Sitting on the bench outside the maternity ward, I think to myself, she's got a point. I got here just an hour ago, all excited with my wife and a neat freak taxi driver who, when my wife's water broke, was afraid it would ruin his upholstery. And now I'm sitting in the hallway, feeling gloom, waiting for the staff to come back from the ER. Everyone but the two nurses has gone to help to treat the people injured in the attack. My wife's contractions have slowed down, too. Probably even the baby feels this whole getting born thing isn't that urgent anymore. As I'm on my way to the cafeteria, a few of the injured roll past squeaking gurneys. In the taxi on the way to the hospital, my wife was screaming like a mad woman. But all these people are quiet. Are you Edgar Carrot? A guy wearing a, ch- check- a checked shirt asks me. The writer? I nod reluctantly. Well, what do you know, he says, pulling a tiny tape recorder out of his bag. Where were you when it, when it happened, he asks. When I hesitate for a second, he says in a show of empathy. Take your time. Don't feel pressured. You've been through a trauma. Mm-hmm. I wasn't in the attack, I explained. I just happened to be here today. My wife's giving birth. Oh, he says, not trying to hide his disappointment. 
and presses the stop button on his tape recorder. <laughs> Mazel tov. Now he sits down next to me and lights himself a cigarette. Maybe you should try talking to someone else, I suggest, as an attempt to get the lucky strike smoke out of my face. A minute ago, I saw them take two people into neurolo neurology. Russians, he says with a sigh. Don't know a word in Hebrew. They don't let you in ne into neuro neurology anyway. This is my seventh attack in the hospital, and I know all the shtick by now. We sit there a minute without talking. He's about ten years younger than I am, but starting to go bald. When he catches me looking at him, he smiles and says, Too bad you weren't there. A reaction from a writer would have been good for my article. Someone original, someone with little vision. After every attack, I always get the same reactions. Suddenly, I heard a boom. I don't know what happened. Everything was covered with blood. How much, how much of that can you take? It's not their fault, I say. It's just that the attacks are always the same. What kind of a, an original thing can you say about an explosion and senseless death? Beats me, he says with a shrug. You're the writer. <laughs> Some people in white jackets are starting to come back from the ER on the way to the maternity ward. You're from Tel Aviv, the reporter says to me. So why did you come all the way to this dump to give birth? We wanted the natural birth. The department here. Natural? He interrupts, sniggering. What's natural about a midget with a cable hanging from his belly button popping out of your wife's vagina? I don't even try to respond. I told my wife, he continues, if you ever give birth, only by caesarean section, like in America. I don't want some baby stretching you out of shape from me. Nowadays, it's only primitive countries like, like this that a woman gives birth, that women give birth like animals. Yalla, I'm going to work. Starting to get up, it rises one more time. Maybe you have something to say about the attack anyway, he asks. Did it change anything for you, like what you're going to name the baby or something? Mm -hmm. I don't know. I smile apologetically. Never mind, he says with a wink. I hope it goes easy, man. Six hours later, a midget with a cable hanging from his belly button <laughs> comes popping out of my wife's vagina <laughs> and immediately starts to cry. I try to calm him down, to convince him that there's nothing to worry about that by the time he grows up, everything here in the Middle East will be settled. Peace will come. There won't be any more terrorist attack. And even if once in a blue moon there is one, there will always be someone original, someone with a little vision around to describe it perfectly. He quiets down and then considers his next move. He's supposed to be naive, seeing as how he's a newborn, but even he doesn't buy it. And after a second's hesitation and a small hiccup, he goes back to crying. <laughs> and, and so this, this memoir, this lovely, touching memoir, begins with, with the birth of your son. And it takes this arc through seven years of your life, flying around the world to book festivals here and there and everywhere, bombs dropping, meeting amazing people, through to the seventh year when it draws to a close with, with the death of your father. And it's got a lovely arc of, of, uh, as a memoir. Um, similarly, I just wanted to sort of turn back to you, mm -hmm. Alain, because your memoir begins really with, with the admission of the death of your mother, mm -hmm. and then it takes you on a, on a two-week journey through 
Juan Noir and meeting the family. But was it also driven in some way by the fact that your son was, was born around about that time? And were you thinking about going back to your family because of the arrival of your son? Oh, uh, I didn't think about that, but uh, I know that in Africa, usually when someone is, if someone died, another one is like uh, born in? No. Born? Born, one is born at the same time. So I think that uh, the strange thing was when my own mother died in 1995, um, I wrote a book the same day. I think that that's the quickest book I ever wrote. Uh, it was a book of poetry uh, called in French uh, La Légende de l'Errance, huh? the legend of someone who is like wandering somewhere. somewhere. And um, it wasn't uh, the birth of my, my kid which like, uh, pushed me to do that. It was just the shock of the city because uh, uh, when I wrote, uh, like, uh, Demain j'aurai 20 ans, tomorrow I will be 20, I didn't go to the Congo. But I thought that I was very accurate in case I was just writing some, something which was far from the reality. It was my own fiction in my head. It was the remembrance of my mother, how, like, he was uh, going outside, how I was jealous of uh, of uh, that woman, and the fact that I thought that I have uh, a brother, but uh, in Europe it couldn't be the real brother because I'm the, I'm the only kid, and my mother met that guy whose name Roger in the market, like uh, it say in the book, they met in the market like that. I was already in yeah. the arm of, of my my mother, and the father escaped. So that guy came and each time trying to buy like peanuts to my mother, but it was uh, the way to try to like uh, circle the situation. And then they came together and I discovered that that guy has like uh, eight children already. So my mother <laughs> said, don't worry, they are your sister and your brother. And I grew up with two mothers. That mother, Mama Martin, who is still alive. So if I want to keep on like giving tribute to my mother, I have the commitment to help that uh, second, my first mother until her last day in the world. So Mama Martin like would like sit there, no word, she wouldn't speak. And I, I liked this situation when I was a kid to see that I had to mother. If I go to my own mother and I say that I want like uh, a penny to buy something, my mother would say no. And then I go to Mama Martin. <laughs> I say I want a penny, Mama Martin, yes, I give it, but don't say it to your mom. <laughs> so that's the situation I lived at yeah. that time. So I don't know the feeling of the brotherhood, biologically saying, no. because uh, I was like an exception. In, yeah. in the city, because in Africa, you see all the family, seven, ten people, but I was the only one. So in order to like be in a calm situation with my friend or my colleague at school, I would say that, no, I have sister and brother, but they live in France. That was what I was talking in, like, tomorrow I will be 20. 
they live in France, they're going to come here in a nice car. And since I didn't have a picture of those friends who live in France, so one day I took like a catalog from La Redoute in France, you know? There was like uh, two blacks for the first time, a girl and a boy. And I brought it at school. I said, they are here and they are actors in France. <laughs> so that was the, my beliefs at that time. Yeah, yeah. But at, overall, they still are my, they are my friend, yeah. my, my brother and my family. And so, because, because just to explain, Roger had, had two wives. Yes, two wives. And he could, would quite like to have had a, a third wife. Two wives and two houses. Yeah. But the first house belongs to my father, Roger with the first woman. The second That's house was, was bought by my mother before meeting Roger. Yeah. So it was strange to see that uh, even in Africa, the woman was the person who go and take the man and bring home to live over there. So each time when it was a clashing, I would uh, listen to my, my, my father saying, you are doing that because I'm living in, at your house. So then I knew that it was uh, my mother's house. And when she died, so I, I took the house, but I told to all my brothers, you can use it as long as you want. Because it was mine, but I think that I don't need that. It's their place. So they are living over there, building everything. It's a mess in that. Uh, <laughs> but... It's okay, yeah, yeah. my brothers. Yeah, yeah. and, and there's, there are beautiful descriptions. I mean, the book's in two, two mm -hmm. halves, really. Um, mm -hmm. The first one is really describing the kind of the, the return to the, the family and the uncles and, and half-brother and half-sister, you know, various different people who, who you encounter. In the second part of, of the memoir, you really you're looking more around Pointe-Noire as it is today, and, and yes. you, you walk around and you go and visit a cinema. Um, I was very interested in the section where you, you talk about the 300s, which is a part of town named yes. for the price of sex, because <laughs> it was the place where the, where the prostitutes were. Yes, it's, um, we call it in French uh, Quartier 300, uh, the 300, just because uh, if you want a prostitute, it's going to cost uh, 300 francs, CFA, the money from there. It was called like that because... Um, at that time, the price was 500. But the girl from DRC, the other Congo... Which is Zaire. Zaire. Right? They came to Pointe-Noire, and it was a kind of a battle between uh, the prostitute from Pointe-Noire and the prostitute from Zaire. The prostitute from Zaire came to the city, and they put the price lower to 300. So the Congolese remained with 500 and no customer. It was like a mess over there. The mayor came and separated them and told to the people from Zaire to go to the city in the center over there to the European section to do that over there. But it was 300. Everybody would go to the other side to follow the, the people from Zaire. That's why we called that uh, place... Quartier 300, and it remains until now Still the same that. name, and that will be the the book I'm releasing uh, in a few days in France. Right. So, so this is interesting. You mm. you you describe then the, the acid throwing attacks between these two groups of women who, yes. who are working mm. um, 
in the sex industry in this area, mm. and now you've turned this into a, a novel which will be published in French. In the yes, the, the good thing with uh, autobiography is that you can like pick the character who are real, and all of them are novels. You know, my uncle, the Cartier 300, my father, I never write a book about uh, a father. I wrote about my mother several times, my brother, yeah. but not the book of the father. But I thought that the book about the prostitutes, which is Petit Piment, uh, was very important for me because that's the place I would pass over there. If I want to eat, I would pass over there. You see the prostitute from Zaire giving the kid to feeding the kid on the streets. You go buy the beer for them, you brought over there for the clients, and they go, oh, you can keep the change. So we would like stay in front of the prostitute house, just waiting the moment the prostitute is going to say, okay, go buy the beer over there for my client. Mm -hmm. And you go buy, you're going to keep the change. So going back over there was like uh, I was in my house. I was in my, my world. So I thought that it uh, was important uh, for me to give them tribute for in that next book. Yeah. So Petit Piment published this week in France. In France, in France. But I think we can announce for the first time that it will be published in English yes. in 2017. By, uh, by Serpent's Tale. Mm -hmm. And so, I, uh, will you come back and, and tell us about that in, in 2017? Yes, if I'm invited. <laughs> you yes. will be. <laughs> so, um, this, this, the fictionalization of real things is, is, is clearly an important part of the way you write. Edgar, um, how about you? What's the, your, the relationship between your fiction and non fiction? Well, I must say that uh, when I write fiction, I write about the uh, emotions that you know that I felt. Mm -hmm. But but the setting is always uh, it has nothing. Yeah, it most of the time has nothing to do with my life. It's almost like kind of a metaphor. It's like let's say if I say I feel like an elephant who's fasting on Yom Kippur, <laughs> but is fantasizing about the cake, then I write a story about an elephant. You know and. The, so uh, for me, it it always kind of kept me safe because because I, I think that you know uh, uh, being a second generation to Holocaust survivor, I was always uh, as a kid very much uh, aware of the fact that the things that I say have uh, affects my parents' mood, and mm -hmm. I wanted them to be happy. So I would always give the right answers, you know. So if my, my mother would say to me, what do, would you want, like another portion of food or dessert? I would say, I want another portion of food. Mm. And even now, you know, when I'm married and, and I uh, live with my family, I don't eat desserts because I kind of, by instinct, I try to do the things that will be okay, you know. And, uh, and the thing is that when I write fiction, I have, the, I have these things that... Uh, that I, I feel liberated to be myself. I can do all those kind of weird stuff that, that I, I can't, usually can't even articulate, you know. And, uh, and, uh, and when you write a story, if the story is, is far enough from your real life, then people can, can recognize the emotion, but they can never contextualize it. They can't say, okay, so you wanted to beat somebody up, but who was this guy, you know, because it's not real. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Both of you have this way when you're writing your memoir of writing 
it, it, almost in a fictional manner. There, 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 for example, your, your short story, Pastrami, it's not even a short story, it's your Pastrami, which is the final piece in here, which is a description of, of you and your wife and your son uh, lying together in bed, playing a game. Um, yeah, I wish it was in bed. It was, it's in the middle of the road, yeah. But in the road? Is it in the road? I yeah. Then you were lying, <laughs> lying together and, and calling it Pastrami when, and Lev is asking what, what, how, what should you do when the bombs are falling. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, well you know, I think that uh, I, I, I really like uh, uh, writing fiction, but long before I wrote fiction, I would tell stories. And I think that stories always had this kind of function in my life to take things that seem to be arbitrary and to kind of suddenly make sense into them. You know, I remember the, the first story I've, I've ever invented. I was, uh, I think I was in the first or second grade and it was a long walk from school home. And in Israel, uh, everybody who's 18, men and women, they go to the army. And I saw this uh, beautiful uh, woman soldier mm -hmm. talking to a guy and they were very close to each other and smiling and then at some point she suddenly punched him in the face and as she punched him in the face she started crying and she ran away from her and I remember I had to walk something like you know almost a mile home and by the time I got home I made up a story you know there were a brother and a sister the brother was stealing money from the parents he wanted the sister to cover from <laughs> And the moment that I was able to kind of make up a story, then this kind of a senseless violence and people crying, suddenly it kind of made sense. So, so I think that, that I use storytelling all the time to kind of take things that don't make sense and try to make, put sense into them. So the same goes with the pastrami, because the pastrami thing was that uh, we, I was with my wife and child outside and there was a missile attack, and, and my son refused to lie on the ground. He said... Uh, if it's too dirty for me to eat from it, I won't lie on it. Because whenever he has a popsicle and falls on the ground, we do, don't let him eat from it. And you, know, you kind of figure out that you have like 60 seconds before the missile is going to explode. And, and you, you don't want to shout on him. And, and suddenly kinda, I told him, let's play pastrami sandwich. You know, mommy is a piece of bread and you'll be the pastrami and I'll be the, the second piece of bread. And, mm -hmm. and suddenly like you take the same reality, but you, you try to make it into something that is more pleasant and more human. And he loved the, the, this game so much that he was disappointed when the bombs dropped further away. <laughs> no, he had the, really, when, when, it, when, the, when the attack was over and I wanted to get up, he wanted me to stay some more because he said it's really warm and nice. <laughs> and then when we got into the car, he said, but what if there will be no more attacks ever? What will we do? You know, and immediately I have this kind of thing that I always try keeping in a good mood. So I said, don't worry, don't worry, there'll be more attacks, I'm sure. <laughs> I just saw the news, it's gonna be okay. <laughs> and my wife, who's the more sensible one, said, and you know, we can play it without attacks too, you know. <laughs> you know, daddy can lie on your back even when they don't shoot missiles at you, you know. I said, yeah, that's true, yeah. Maybe they won't have more attacks, but I, we can do it, you know, anyway. <laughs> that's such a lovely sort of novelistic moment, even though it's in a mm. memoir. Now, I I'm struggling to see the clock, but I think we've got to, to the point, have we, where we will open it up to questions. There's so much material here, so um, I really hope that you'll get a chance to ask some questions. But whilst you're thinking, and if you put your hand up if you're interested in asking a question, I just want to ask you quickly about being an outsider, being an insider. You know, you are, you're both, in some sense migrant writers or immigrant writers or immigrant writers, does that affect how you 
approach your writing? Hmm. <laughs> you know, it's like in a test. You answer and I copy. <laughs> 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 Well, uh, <laughs> any more interesting questions from the it's, audience? It, I don't know. It's uh, actually it doesn't affect my writing, but at the same time, I know that if uh, I became a writer, it's uh, also because I moved from my country. Then I felt this lack of country, so I began like to gather all the stuff which can help me to build another Congo. So this kind of uh, uh, nostalgia, it's very important for a writer sometimes. My book, usually I write my book with, uh, in the background, uh, the music from the Congo from the 60s, 70s, which is like um, a kind of, uh, a kind of uh, energy it's gonna like push me to think about that country. So, being a migrant is, can be difficult, but at the same time, if you are a writer, you can live wherever because you are you will be accepted anyway because you are trying to build another world. You're not trying. You're not trying to steal something from the people. You're just trying to explain to the people that even if now you are suffering, maybe I can give you for a moment the time to go to my country, which I left, but I can take you over there and you can find something else maybe in order to bear, to support what you are facing in your reality. Wow, follow that, Edgar. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, well, actually, our story is different because I was born in Israel and I was raised in Israel, but my parents uh, immigrated. And, and there is this thing about diaspora Jews that, uh, uh, you know, I, I think they always carry two identities. Let's say if you're French Jews, you're both French and a Jew. Mm -hmm. And this allows you this kind of uh, insider-outsider position that when you're with French people, you say... Who are those crazy French people? And you can say that as a Jew. Mm -hmm. And when you go to synagogue and you look at the people around you, you say, who are those crazy Jews? And you can say it as a French person. <laughs> so I think this ability to kind of both be inside and outside kind of creates this uh, uh, reflexiveness that, that is very typical of Jewish writers that I grew up on, you know, people like Bashevi Singer and uh, Shalom Aleichem and, you know, and mm -hmm. Isaac Babel and Kafka. And I think that many times when I go, especially, by the way, in Poland, they talk about the, the, the phenomenal thinking of Jews. You know that Jews are very successful and think. And I attribute to that because, you know, when you look at the, the, the successful uh, thinkers, you know, like, I don't know, uh, uh, Einstein or, or Karl Marx or Freud. For example, Sartre. Yeah, so, 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 so they, they always had this ability that they were inside the discipline, but they were also critical of the disciplines that they were inside. Yeah. And I think that this is something that it was kind of lost in Israel when being a Jew and 
being Israeli kind of became synonymous. So you mm -hmm. didn't have this reflexiveness anymore. And I once said in an interview, by the way, they want to kill me after saying that, but that I said that I feel like a Jew living in the diaspora of Israel. And, <laughs> and, I, didn't, and I didn't mean it in a bad way because whenever, you know, whenever it's enough that there are three people on stage, I already feel like I'm a minority, you know? <laughs> it's always, there's always, I never kind of totally feel I belong. I, I like everybody, but, but it's, it's like the, the world around me never makes sense, you know? I mean, I mean it doesn't, we don't even need to be three people. It's just me on my own. I don't make sense. <laughs> I, I wrote this book. This book is about how much I love my family. Mm -hmm. And since I published it, I go all around the world telling people how I love my family while I'm away from my family, you know? <laughs> so I don't even understand myself, you know? So, so I really think that there is something uh, of an immigrant in me, even though all my life I've lived in the same place. Yeah. Okay, great. Can we bring the lights up a bit on the audience? Um, is that possible? And wait, there's a roving microphone, and there's a question here, if we can get the microphone in the middle there. Um, Whilst that microphone's moving, a very quick question then. Are you, do, do you think yourself an Israeli writer or a Jewish writer primarily? Is there a quick answer to that? Uh, I, 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 I think that I'm much more related to the Jewish tradition. I think it's amazing uh, fiction writing from Israel, but I'm much more in the line of uh, Jewish, Jewish fiction. Mm -hmm. Great. Yeah. Okay. I, I wanted to ask how the birth of the states in which, from which you come in the 20th century affect your writing. Great. I think it's for both of us, right? For both of you, yeah. Actually, I didn't catch the question. The How birth? the birth of the state affected your country. Oh, okay. The, then, uh, you, uh, yeah. you, you, you can copy from <laughs> no, me this No, I'm going to copy it. <laughs> yeah, so, so uh, well, you know, I think that, uh, that uh, Israel is really a unique state in, in the sense, you know, I was in the States, in the United States a couple of uh, months ago, and I said to them, you know, in, the, in America, when you have a, a very good book, you make a film based on the book. But we had a very good book, and we made a country based on the book. <laughs> Be because there is this book called The Alt Neuland by Theodor Herzl, in which it was a fiction book, in which he imagined the country in which all Jews live together. And people say, wow, that's such a great idea. Let's try it, you know? <laughs> and... And, the, and I think that, you know, that there is no other country that was basically built as some kind of a concept, you know. It's not, it's not a country that, uh, uh, like, you know, that there were a group of people and through the, uh, the years they grew up. You know, even the language we speak, the Hebrew language, it's uh, when I have to explain to, to kids in Israel about the, the unique language that they use, I say to them, you know, that the, the Hebrew language is like Captain America because... 2,000 years ago, it was frozen, you know, and people who left Israel uh, read and uh, knew how to read and write in Hebrew, but they wouldn't speak Hebrew because it was the language of the Bible, and you don't use this language to ask where the restrooms are <laughs> or how much you have to pay for this mango, you know. So, so you speak Yiddish or you speak German or you speak whatever other language, and the fact is, was it when the people moved to Israel, they started speaking this ancient language, which still has this amazing effect that, you know, that, uh, that let's say if Shakespeare would come here and he would listen to my English with my bad accent or to your English with your beautiful Scottish accent, he wouldn't understand the word. But if Abraham or Isaac would come to Israel, they would understand most of the stuff that people are saying because, mm -hmm. because this, this, uh, language, even the language kind of didn't have this uh, organic 
arc of 2,000 years of developing, it was frozen and suddenly defrosted. So there is something about, about, uh, about this entire world that you live in that it's so much uh, uh, in the mind, you know? It's so, there is something, so many things about it that, that they have to do with, with kind of a decision imposed on life. You know, I'm, I, 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 maybe I'm pushing it too far, but I say that, you know, that uh, even like, let's say, the idea of civilization, you know, that we live in a, a what, what uh, we, we call like, you know, a, 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 a democratic, a liberal country, you know, where people go to the opera and stand very nice in a queue and don't steal each other's mm. parking. But at the same time, <laughs> you go through three years for, for, of compulsory service and sometimes 20 years of a, reserve army service and you live a totally different reality that is very, very violent and not civilized. And, and the idea that you're supposed to draw the line between the two is a very strange idea because, uh, I, I, you know, if a, if a Scottish boy pisses his girlfriend off and she goes and she closes the door mm -hmm. and she says, I don't want to see you again and cries from the other side of the door, then he'll go home Sadly, because, you know, his girlfriend doesn't want to see him and the door is locked. And when an Israeli boy is in the same situation, he'll go home sadly, but he'll know that deep in his heart that he knows how to kick this door open because he trained him in the army to kick those doors open. Mm -hmm. right. So basically, the fact that, he does, that the door is locked is something that he respects. But, but, but if, I think, in Europe you, you see civilization as some kind of an ontological fact... Uh, in Israel, it's more like kind of a serving choice. We, oh, we know how to be civilized, so we're civilized, you know. <laughs> we also know how not to be civilized, but not, we shouldn't use it in this context. So, yeah. so it's very, it's a, I, I don't, I, if to sum it up in a sentence, I can say that, you know, it's not the easiest place to, to live in, but it's extremely inspiring. It's really, it's really a place that it's, it's wonderful. It's wonderful for a storyteller, you know, because because of the fact that it's so unique. Yeah. Wow. Uh, Alain, I suppose mm. the question for you, in your case would be more about the uh, Congo's independence yeah. from France, that, the, the birth of a new. Yes, Congo I think that for the Congolese people, the main topic is how to uh, get the freedom from what we we have from the France. How can you be a Congolese writer and writing in French instead of writing in your African languages? That's the kind of question uh, as African I often face in front of uh, people. But just uh, because uh, I didn't uh, read in my own language, I met the literature through French language. All my language, uh, I do speak uh, seven Congolese languages. We are just four million with 300 languages. <laughs> so it's not that easy uh, to, uh, to explain to people that uh, you can speak like uh, 50 languages, but all the languages are just oral language. It's not written. Even if I write my novel in Lingala, in Bembe, on, in Munukutuba, nobody can read it because uh, they didn't go to school for that, because uh, you need first to prepare the reader if you want to 
have uh, a great literature in like in Lingala, you need to prepare people to read Lingala at school. Our authorities in Congo didn't do that. So as a matter of fact, we cannot say that writing, for instance, in France, in France is another way to perpetuate the colonization. No, because my friends, if I'm writing in France, something else is in that language. I'm trying to write with my accent, you know, writing with accent like we are speaking with both, it with uh, its own accent. I write with my accent. And if you, you remove that accent, I'm going to be like uh, a zebra in which you have removed all the his zebra stripes. over there. It's not the stripes. It's not going to be anymore a, a zebra. Yeah. So you can read like uh, French literature, but you're going to read African literature, reading Kuruma, reading Chernomonenembo, reading Ben Okri, even in English. Mm. You're going to find something else which comes from the background over there. So I'm not perpetuating the colonization, but I'm trying to write in my own French in order to create my own language, mm. like the guitar. You have the guitar with six strings. People have been like playing guitar for uh, decades uh, or millionaires, like we say, but you're going to find your rhythm over there. Yeah. So the main important thing for the African writer is how to write in French without losing your mind. Right. right. Now, um, we're running out of time. Some more questions. So a quick one at the front here, then we're going to have another one there. So let's just... We've got a couple of minutes, so we're just going to really speed as fast as you can. Yeah. The trouble is, I will find myself asking questions if you don't get there quickly. There's so many I'd like to ask. Edgar, uh, I really love your stories. I think you're a bit like Singer, but with better jokes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, my question is, um, just listening to the great stories this evening, um, if people like Mike Lee in this country had their way, we wouldn't be allowed to hear Edgar because there'd be a boycott of uh, Israeli performers. And I know Edgar's got strong views about it. I wonder if you'd both like to say just a word about that. Very quick word. Yeah, I, I, the, the truth is that last time uh, I spoke about that, I got into trouble, but I'm used to getting into trouble. Uh, I, personally, uh, I don't like boycotts. I, I, I have a, a big... Uh, I like criticism and I like activism, but I don't like boycotts. I didn't like boycotts when I was a kid, too. And I tend to see boycotts usually as a very easy solution, you know. And I, But I think that, you know, I went to Australia and I met this... Uh, wonderful writer who wrote a book about how his family, who, who came from a Greek roots, uh, were very anti-Semite, and how racism corrupts everything. And because of the boycott, he refuses to publish this book in Israel. And I said to him, do, do you really think that by not publishing a book that denounces racism in Hebrew, you're going you're gonna, to uh, change the Middle East, you're going to bring peace to the Middle East? Now, if I may be a little bit of a hippie, I really think that, you know, that we can go and we say there is left wing and there is right wing. But in the end, what I think that exists, there is 
empathy and resentment. And I think that, you know, when it comes to culture, culture is this kind of safe haven of empathy. We all, you know, I, my, my favorite films are Iranian films. I love Iranian films. You know, I don't like many things in the Iranian regimes, but those films helped humanize the way that I see Iran. And I think that, you know, that when it, when it, when it comes to culture, uh, blocking yourself from being exposed to a culture or blocking yourself from bringing a culture, it's basically, even if you don't admit it, it's, it's some kind of attempt to dehumanize or alienate, which is, for me, it's the exact opposite of what art is all about. There's a Spanish word, misericordia, which is mercy, and I think maybe that's what you're talking about, empathy, mercy, um, yeah. is what we need. Alain, I'm, I'm so sorry that we're going to, we've run out of time for another question. The last word from you, Alain, on this question of censorship. Well, censorship, uh, I think that uh, I first did when I went to your country in Israel, because um, I have two books translated, uh, Over the Broken Glass and uh, Memoir of a Porcupine, Luckily, we won a prize over there in Israel, Tel Aviv, and then uh, spread the news that I'm going to Israel in order to uh, that translation. So at that time, all the writers were writing to me, you cannot go over there. And I received a note saying that if you go there, we're going to burn your book in the uh, bookstore and so But I, I went anyway. I was in the same mood of saying that, uh, look, if I want, if I have something to say against, uh, like, Israel or the situation, it's better to go over there and to express my thought to the, in the public. So I went over there and I talked. The, the prize was given. I, I talked about the relation between them because not everybody has the same this kind of the same kind of uh, censorship of being. The, you're gonna find people who are open who can discuss. And I went over there. I did change my address email, but it was in 2007. I changed two times because hackers, everything, uh, people saying that uh, I'm the left wing. Uh, but if I have to go over there now, I will go. Because I don't think that the fact that if I boycott my own book over there, I'm going to resolve the problem. They were fighting before I was born. They're still fighting, and maybe when I'm there, I'm not. Not, they're going to keep on fighting. So if I have something to say, I better go there. Yeah. So I went to the Mur de Lamentation, with the name of the, the, the... The Wailing Wolf. Well, yes, I went over there, and all of a sudden, I received a sheet of bird on my... On, on my on my coat, so someone and say, I saw a Jew coming over there. Did, you are very lucky. You should like do that. And I did it on the wall. And, and since then, I was invited here. And with that, <laughs> <laughs> with that, we must end it. So much to talk about. Sorry we couldn't include more questions. Um, let's carry on the discussion. These are really wonderful books, and I urge you to buy a copy. Let's go to the bookshop where they'll be signing copies. But in the meantime, please put your hands together again for Alain Mavancou, Edgar Kerrett.
More podcasts and videos of Edinburgh International Book Festival events are available at www.edbookfest.co.uk on iTunes and YouTube. Just search for Edbookfest.